Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning. In July 2017, my neighbor, uh, Justine Damon Ruscheck was shot and killed by Minneapolis police late on a Saturday night after she called 911 out of concern someone was being raped in the alley. The next day, Sunday, after the police tape was taken down and the cleanup van left, many from the neighborhood gathered in our streets in shock and grief. It was a disorienting, tough day. Through a series of events, it was decided to have a gathering at the place she was killed to grieve and honor her. It was an informal gathering, no clear plan, but we had a microphone and speakers with the idea that people would stand and talk about Justine and what had happened. Many people came to that gathering from all over the city, including many activists who'd been working for years against police violence and the devastation our so-called criminal justice system has brought to our communities. The neighborhood I choose to live in is mostly white. Most of the activists were black. I can't truly know their motivations, but based on their actions, I believe most of them were there to, in a way, welcome us into the family of people whose lives are closely affected by police violence and to offer us solace and guidance. I can imagine that some of them had trepidation about showing up in a very white space after a white woman had just been killed by a black police officer, not knowing what sort of welcome they'd receive. They showed up anyway. It was a very tough day, and my memories even just a year later have some fragmentation, but this is what I remember happening. Different people had the microphone and spoke about Justine and her killing. At some point, an activist who was black had the microphone and spoke their truth about police violence emphatically and with anger. I think many from the neighborhood were uncomfortable. I think I was. And a neighbor interrupted and gently took the microphone away from the activist and moved the gathering along. I know for certain that the intentions of my neighbor who did that were not malicious. However, I also know that one of the key operations of whiteness is to tell those of us who are white that all that matters is our good intentions, or at least our overt lack of hurtful intentions. But focusing on intentions minimizes any accountability we have for the effects of our actions, even when our actions are clearly hurtful, which these were. Taking that microphone away was saying, you are not welcome here. Your story, your pain, your perspective, your way of expressing yourself does not belong here. I know for certain that this is in fact how our actions were perceived by at least some of the activists, because in the subsequent months, I heard them tell the story publicly at rallies and meetings, how they were treated that Sunday afternoon by me and my neighbors. As for me, I stood in silence through the whole thing. I knew it was wrong, and I think the most generous thing I can say to myself about my inactions those days is that it's helped me understand a little better what people mean when they talk about how damaging whiteness is to those of us who are white. 
I stood in silence, worried about looking foolish in front of my neighbors. But the story doesn't end here. After the gathering, a couple of my neighbors ran after a group of activists who were leaving. I'm told they essentially said, we're sorry. We know that was wrong. We are grateful you're here. We want to do this better. Please come back. And many did come back. They came into our homes that week later to help us understand what happened and what we could do about it. Three days later, we had a march and rally in our neighborhood, and many of those activists came and spoke forcefully at the rally about police violence, as did some of us from the neighborhood. Many of us continued to work together and show up for each other at different events and actions as police continue to kill, and justice is so rare. The work is a constant reminder that it requires a humility and a willingness for those of us who are white to believe and listen to people of color when we hurt them, to apologize, to learn from our mistakes, and to do better. And we can do better. Come, let us worship. So over the last couple of weeks, I've been experiencing all kinds of emotions. I don't know if this is how it's been for you, but I've found myself feeling all kinds of things, from rage and disappointment and despair to over-engagement and disengagement and discouragement and hope and possibility and maybe, maybe we're just going to finally make it and be who we could be or maybe it's all totally lost. I've been kind of all over the map in short. That's just a quick description of my emotional landscape the last few weeks. And there's a lot that's behind that. There's the news, of course. There's the evidence of the deepening political divisions in our nation and the basic lack of civility and ability to see each other as human in our nation that is deeply disturbing to me. And then there's this other background, these, this stuff that is going on for me in my own life as well. And I'll tell you a little bit about that and how it all connects. You see, I'm lucky, super lucky to have these two amazing kids in my life. One of them is in elementary school and one is in middle school and I am so grateful to be able to say they're doing well. My daughter, she's at elementary school and the theme of the month there is belonging. So in her school, they're spending time every day talking about how to make their classrooms and the playground and the lunchroom and the bus feel more welcoming. How they can each reach out to strangers, to newcomers, how they can make sure that everyone knows that they're worthy and wanted at school. And my son, on the other hand, has entered the wild world of middle school. And their theme of the month is not quite as positive, but it's trying for the same thing. October is bullying prevention month in middle school. And they are talking a lot about how to ask for help and how to intervene and how to move from passive bystander to active ally in interrupting the bullying that they're seeing when folks are being hurt with words or being excluded or when people are physically hurting each other. So our conversations on the car ride home from school have been all engaging for me. And I'm grateful that my kids are talking about the small slights and the bigger hurts that they're seeing and experiencing at school and how they're coping with this. It warms my heart in lots of ways to see my son just zero in his attention on his sister when she's sharing about what's going on at school, 
when she tells him about the way that, yeah, she does get talked to sometimes about not having a dad, and people like to refer to it in this like disgusted tone of voice. And he gives her his advice on how to intervene and what to say, and they're working together. And then we keep talking, and all of us are working together on what to do with the kids in the hallway during the passing period at middle school, the predictable same kids every time who are saying discouraging, hurtful things to the other kids and just have making it rough for everybody. We're working on things that matter over these conversations, and I'm grateful that they're talking and I'm listening and we're in it together. And on the other side of the gratitude is total rage. Let's just be honest about how I'm feeling inside. I want to get in there and talk to the adults and be like, are you not seeing this? Can you not make this better? I want to talk to the kids and get them to stop doing what they're doing. And I found myself saying out loud to some friends this week, I think I'm going to take up paintball as my new sport. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is actually just hang out at school or outside in the street. And whenever I see somebody saying something horrible about somebody else, I'm just gonna pink, like just a little paint. It can't hurt that much. <laughs> so I know I need to do some thinking and some praying and meditating about my responses. But I wonder, I'm really wondering how long we're gonna be able to hold our children's attention with these conversations about kindness and making room when the leaders of our country can't be bothered to do the same thing, when they're openly mocking groups of people who are suffering, I really wonder how we're gonna do this. So I'm finding myself swinging back and forth on these poles of despair and gratitude and hope and possibility and total discouragement. And I have been very, very grateful for an encounter I had with a colleague last week who shared these words with me. Outrage is not a strategy. Outrage is not a strategy, but imagination is. These words come from Bill Doherty, who some of you know from his time as a member here at First Universalist years ago, or you might know him as founder of the Doherty Relationship Institute or the Marital First Responders Initiative, or more recently as one of the founders of, the Better, Angel, of Better Angels, this organization that recognizes the divisions of our times and brings liberals and conservatives together into a working alliance. Outrage is not a strategy, he says, but imagination is. So I'm holding tight to this short phrase, knowing that there are absolutely times for outrage, that there are times that anger has motivated me and us to needed change. And I have been wondering, what would it look like to more intentionally encourage imagination in our individual and communal lives? What would it look like to imagine a world that actually realized our highest hopes, a world where everybody belonged, where everyone was welcomed and knew their worth as whole and holy here? What would it be like if we greeted the stranger as if they were about to become the long beloved? What would that be like? I believe that the deepest desire of the human heart is to belong, to be welcomed, to be seen and known as whole and holy, to be treated with kindness and care, and I believe it is our responsibility, each of us, to make this real in the world, no matter where we are, for in the lunchroom or on the bus or in the middle of a heated political debate. It is up to us to realize this deep longing in our hearts to be seen and known as whole and holy and worthy. The deepest desire of the human heart is to belong. This is what I believe. 
and it's not exactly what I was taught. I was taught a lot about meeting basic physical human needs. I was taught a lot in my psychology and sociology and science classes about Maslow's Pyramid. Have you guys been taught about this? I swear it was in every class I took for years and years. This idea that we first, as people, had to achieve food and safety and security and water and medicine before we could ever level up in our lives to something like love or belonging or a feeling of worthiness or self-actualization. I was taught about this over and over again, about our fundamental physiological needs coming first. And a couple weeks ago, the Peace Circle here at First Universalist hosted the author and teacher Paul K. Chappelle for a series of lectures and workshops. And everybody I know that went to these said that it completely shifted their understanding and their assumptions. Who got to hear him speak? I'm so glad you came. And I wasn't able to be there, but I've gone through and read many of his writings, and it's all in there. It's so good. Paul is speaking about his own experience, about the tangles of trauma, the intersections of race and peace literacy, and a new way to understand human needs. And in one of his writings, he shared about this. He said, whenever I give lectures, I start with the, with the audience, and I ask them, what do human beings need? I've asked this question tons of times, he says, and the response is always the same. People start popcorning out. They say things like food and water and shelter and oxygen, safety. Every now and then, someone will throw out a word like love or community. But Paul says when he was teaching a peace leadership class in northern Uganda, where the people had lived through a civil war, he asked the group the same or similar question. He asked them, what is more important for human beings? Food or purpose and meaning? Food or purpose and meaning? They all replied the same way, purpose and meaning. And one of the participants raised her hand and explained further. She said, purpose and meaning are more important than food, because if you have food but don't have any purpose and meaning, you won't want to eat. You won't want to live. If we have a lot of food but don't have purpose and meaning, we can lose the will to live. And on the other hand, if we have a lot of purpose and meaning but don't have any food, we will work hard to find food. This example has been working in my heart and my mind, my spirit, ever since I read it. And it's been shaking up my understanding of what is most important to human beings. It's cracking open these assumptions that got laid for me from other people. In his writings, Paul Chappelle proposes that belonging and interconnection are actually the most basic of all of our human needs because it is through these that everything else comes. It's through belonging and interconnection and working together that we find and grow food. It's in being together that we create safety and shelter that can stand through weather and the ways of the world. It's together that we can find love and know feelings of worthiness. And it's together that we can discover and live into our highest calling and our sense of meaning. So what if we flip this upside down? What if we took this pyramid and turned it over and said purpose and meaning and love and belonging are actually the fundamental building blocks of our sense of need and motivation and connection, more important even than food and safety and shelter? Well, it turns out we wouldn't be the first people to do this. Surprise, surprise. It turns out that Maslow himself wondered and worried about this. All the way back in 1962, he wrote this. He says, my motivation theory was published 20 years ago, and in all that time, nobody repeated it or tested it or really analyzed it or criticized it. They just used it, swallowed it whole with only minor modifications. 
In the last years of his life, Abraham Maslow spent his days trying to create a different understanding of how human motivation works, creating a system that framed human needs as interconnected and complex, letting go of the hierarchical and oversimplistic pyramid pattern that had become so popular. So given that Maslow himself disputed this theory in his own lifetime, I have been left wondering, why is it that I and so many of us have bought it hook, line, and sinker year over year after year? Why is it that we've decided that this works and this fits? And I have been wondering, how is it that this old way of thinking, this pyramid pattern that was presented to us, how is it that this hierarchy of needs and motivations supports white supremacy culture and harmful patterns of oppression? How are these interconnected? I've been wondering, if many of us have been trained to believe that it's only after we have food and medicine and safety and shelter that we can attain those things like love and belonging, what does that mean in a society where indigenous people and people of color are often denied access to those very things? Does this mean that in our American society it's only the exceptional person of color or indigenous person who can attain those elusive higher levels of human functioning that include things like belonging, and love and worthiness and self-actualization. I wonder if this isn't why this flawed and faulty way of thinking about what human needs has stuck around for so long, because it reinforces white supremacy culture, if this feeling of belonging isn't something that those in power have wanted to reserve just for themselves. The author Robin DiAngelo reminds us that as she says, White people enjoy a deeply internalized, largely unconscious sense of racial belonging in US society. This racial belonging is instilled via the whiteness embedded in the culture at large. Everywhere we look, and she's, the we she is talking about is white folks, everywhere we look, we see our own racial image reflected back to us in our heroes and heroines, in standards of beauty, in our role models and teachers, in our textbooks and historical memory in the media, in religious iconography, including the image of God himself. In virtually any situation or image deemed valuable in dominant society, she writes, whites belong. Indeed, it is rare for most whites to experience a sense of not belonging, and such experiences are usually very temporary and easily avoidable. White people are used to belonging. That's what she's telling us. And when situations come up that cause white folks to feel like they don't belong because of their race, it can be deeply unsettling. So knowing this, knowing that belonging is a fundamental human need, knowing that feelings of racial belonging have largely been reserved for white people in our dominant American society, what are we as people of faith and we as Unitarian Universalists in particular called to do? How are we called to respond? I've been grateful that the central tenets of our faith are actually really clear on these points. Unitarian, Universalist sa Unitarian Universalism says clearly, no one is outside the circle of God's love or the wide welcome of this universe. Racism and white supremacy culture are flat out incompatible with our faith. And Unitarian Universalism demands that we live our faith out not in isolation, but in community with each other and with the larger world. We are called to bring our imagination to bear, to help heal the divisions of our times, supporting ourselves and each other in finding new ways of disconnecting. Or, we, all, we have plenty of ways of disconnecting. <laughs> Catch that. Finding new ways of connecting instead of disconnecting. 
Glad I didn't just let that roll. That would be terrible. <laughs> Finding new ways to push ourselves out of the well-worn grooves of anger and despair into creativity and possibility and an acknowledgement of the deepest longings of our hearts. We are called to use our imaginations to find new ways forward, even when discouragement and despair can have a grip on of us. I know I've told bits of the story about my grandfather before, and there's one thing I want to share again today. My grandfather was a member of the British Cavalry during World War II, and soon after the war began, he was captured and sent to be a prisoner in a prisoner of war camp for many, many years. He was disconnected from his entire family back home. They didn't know if he was alive or dead, and while he was living in that prisoner of war camp, his first son was born and died, and he never met him. My grandfather writes that despair and rage and sadness and discouragement were all pretty constant companions to him while he lived in that camp. And that after a time, it became clear to him and his fellow prisoners that they needed something more if they were going to stay sane throughout the war. They needed to keep their minds active and engaged and talking together they realized that each of them knew something unique. They each had their own life experience, their own learning, and they decided to make this kind of makeshift school right there in the camp, which with each of them teaching what they had to bring and all of them learning the other things. So my grandfather taught math, and I imagine him teaching about electricity and how sound carries through wires, which was something he was always fascinated about. And he learned German there in the camp. And when he arrived home, finally, physically weak and emaciated, his spirit was still intact. In fact, he went on speaking German and teaching it for the rest of his life. And when I asked him about it, he said that what he was trying to do was to remember the beauty of the place and the culture despite his experiences. I don't know if I can do it, but I would like to be like him. I would like to bring my imagination to bear to see more than just the despair and the rage and the sadness. I would like for us to find new ways, new ways to be together that change what is happening for us as individuals and for all of us as a community. I want to find ways together to make sure that everyone is included, that the doors of access and inclusion are actually wide open in our hearts and in our institutions. I don't want my spirit to shrivel up or my heart to crack into all these pieces as I separate myself from others who think and act differently than me, as I chase some illusion of safety. I know that we have to rage and cry and feel whatever it is we're feeling when we feel it without judgment. And as the waves of those emotions rise and fall for me and for all of us, I want us to make room getting to work to create the world that we dream about. The world where we know that the, one, that the long beloved was once an unrecognized stranger and we treat everyone that way. I want to create a world together where we can reach across the divisions that separate us and find our beating hearts. All of us longing to be seen as we are, welcomed with all of who we are, known as whole and holy and worthy. I want to build with you a world where our leaders are models of civility and kindness and decency, where our children's work of creating a sense of belonging, of moving from passive bystander to active ally is all of our work. I want to build with you a world where the deepest longing of our human hearts this longing to belong, to
to be seen, to be known, to be welcomed with kindness is made real here and now. I want this to be our work together. So let us fuel our imaginations. Let us make room for creativity and possibility, change, difference, hope, even in the midst of despair. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.